Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Madeline Puckett, co founder and content director of Wine Folly. Madeline, welcome to the show. Wow. Thank you for having me. We're excited because we're talking about the new business of wine media and exploring a couple different things. And we were super happy to have you on. And obviously, it's so much easier now. You're in San Francisco. We've got a chance to meet up a few times. But we're like, yeah, we need to get Madeline on here because you've done everything from the website to books to YouTube channels. So I figured we could cover a lot of ground and talk about that. But I was hoping, just for those who may not know you, if you could give Peter and I a brief background of how you got into wine. Well, I started by drinking like most of us, but to be serious about it, my grandfather sort of got my dad into wine because he was like a casual collector. He has like the whole VHS selection of Jancis Robinson. Little did I know. Wow. That is something that I have in my collection is some VHS tapes of Jancis, which my grandmother is still holding for me because I don't really have a spot for it here in the city. But if you want to see some old tapes of Jancis and a lot of incredible books. So my grandfather in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, got into wine and started doing mail order and learning more about wine through reading. And it was always sort of a sophisticated beverage in my family. My family's into art and writing and math. There's some sort of math history there that goes back a ways. So my dad, electrical engineer, at the age of 21, decides it's a really good idea to get me drinking right early on and buys me a wine subscription when I turn 21. P.S. This is, I'm going to age myself, but I don't care. It was 2004. He bought me a wine subscription. And that was to K&L Wine Merchants. They were one of the first in online places you could purchase wine from. So every month I was at art school, I got two bottles of wine sent to me from their basic membership, which the price I don't think has even changed today. You can still get the same thing, which is incredible. And that subscription alone got me into wine. It allowed me to taste different bottles. It allowed me to explore things that I would have never tried. And then I tasted that one wine, the aha wine, if you will, which was a Cote de Rhone, and it tasted like olives. And that was really strange to me to have a non-fruity wine, a very savory, but still ripe tasting wine because it was like black olives. And that bottle got me into wine, essentially, although I was sort of like primed and ready for it at that point. Did you do something before founding Wine Folly in 2011? I could compress that a little bit, but essentially I was a musician. I have a degree in music technology composition and fine art, but you can't really do a job in music technology unless you want to be like a recording studio dude or whatever, which I tried. It was not fun. I mean, I like the studio tan, to be fair, but I had to find a job. So I got a job as a graphic designer and on the side, I was into wine and still tasting wine and trying wine and that kind of a thing. And 
I lost my job in early 2009, right after the market crash in 2008. They outsourced my entire department to Bangalore, India, the design department at Reno Gazette Journal, which is owned by USA Today. And I went to a wine bar to drink my sorrows away. And the guy who started the wine bar actually opened it up just four months prior. And he said he hadn't had a day off. And here I am tasting wines and talking about flavors. And this one smells like licorice and that kind of a thing. And he was very excited. He was like, maybe you could come help under the table cash so you can still get your unemployment check and polish glassware. So my journey into the wine world was me polishing a lot of glassware. So I care a lot about glasses now because I have touched and broken, well, not too many for how many I've polished, but glassware, it's a thing. And that got me to taste a lot more wines and be exposed to distributors coming in and tasting bottles. And I got really good at blind tasting. I went to a competition, San Francisco Art Challenge. This was the first Art Challenge they ever did. It was in 2010 or something like that. I went and I did the challenge. Sommelier from Quince was there. Some other sommeliers in the cities, other names of restaurants shall remain nameless because I can't remember them. And I got runner up, which I didn't win, (laughs) but I got runner up on a Chardonnay blind tasting and food pairing recommendations, temperatures, that kind of a thing. And I was like, maybe I can do something in the wine world outside of Reno, which was where I was living. And my friend encouraged me to become certified with the Court of Masters of Sommeliers, which I did in a very fast rate. (laughs) I took the intro and then a month later I did certified and I passed and that was in Seattle and moved up to Seattle. We were getting into startups. There's a whole startup scene back in Seattle in 2010, 2009, 2010, 2011. ICANN has Cheeseburger is up there, for example. The starts of some really amazing marketing agencies now, like SEMrush, sort of happened there in Seattle. And so we were very, my boyfriend slash future husband and I were super excited about the startup community. And I was speaking to a mentor and they're like, you love the internet. Why don't you put the two together? Figure it out. And there were a few blogs and I never wanted Wine Folly to be a blog. It was always going to be so much more than a blog, but you could drape it, whatever you want, onto WordPress and design it. And so my husband, crafty developer as he was, put it together. And then I started writing content for it. We were going to do a content marketing methodology following SEO Moz. Essentially, we were super inspired by SEO Moz or Moz as it is today. Also Seattle company, Rand Fishkin, super awesome dude, just very exciting time. And that's how it got started was in the middle of startup Seattle was like, oh, we're going to make a wine business. We were going to ship wine. It was going to be an online wine club with all videos, exploring all the regions of the world, traveling around, finding the wines, bringing them back, importing them. I was working on an importation license. I had a liquor license on my friend's co-founder's house. It was like on the front door. It was an application to sell retail wine and liquor because it's all under the same thing but it was in like this nice little cute neighborhood. And so that's how it got started. It was very like, let's scrap it together. Let's make it happen. And then December 25th, 2011, we launched our first post. And that was how to wrap a bottle of wine. It was a little late. Timing wasn't perfect. But if you want to wrap a bottle for wine to Christmas and you go back far enough on the blog, you can find that first post. As an Easter gift as well, or a Valentine's Day gift. Or whatever, yeah. We told people to buy a four-inch tube and it fits perfectly, or three-and-a-half-inch tube. <laughs> Maybe we could cover a little bit about what is included in Wine Folly, because you had talked about the origin being the goal to be a video-based wine club, but obviously what people know you for is quite different. It is more of an information portal around wine, educational spot, your maps. That seems like the area where a lot of people would have known. So I'm curious where you started, where you thought it was going versus where it ended up. How would you define 
Wine Folly today? Like, what does it encapsulate? It's an online portal for the topic of wine. And we cover any and all the topics that are both interesting and that people are interested in on the topic of wine, which started out as a content marketing strategy. If people are searching for this topic and you have something about it, they will find you. And that is the top funnel experience. We call it a funnel now, but it was just like, this is how they can find you. And so that question answer being the answer, being the best answer was the way we were going to get people to learn about our wine club. And I, with a graphic design background and honestly not doing very well in English at school and just maybe I have a learning disability or something like that, I started to be like, well, I can make really great visuals. And so a few months down the line, I think it was July in the next year, I made an infographic called How to Choose Wine, which we still sell as a poster today. And it was fun. It was like, is this for you or someone else? And it would like end you somewhere. If it was for you, it would get really yummy bottles of wine. If it was for someone else, you'd eventually get kicked out of the chart. It was a joke. People loved it. We shared it on Facebook and our account grew like by 7,000 in a day. And it got shared everywhere. Back when Facebook was not squelching reach <laughs> like it is today or whatever it's doing today, which is, I don't even want to talk about. That was like, oh, people actually like just that. They want the marketing. They want the information. And a lot of the commentary came back from that. The feedback that we got on the map was, I actually want to know how to choose a bottle of wine. And it's like, oh, you actually want to know how to do that? Well, all right, let me see what I can do for that. So I started creating more posters because we made money on that one poster. It wasn't a poster. It was just a design that happened to be poster shaped. And we contacted the guy who runs the oatmeal in Seattle. If you know that internet cat guru, comic book artist guy, we were like, hey, where do you get your posters printed? Because he was also in Seattle. And he's like, dudes, there's this place in Ballard you can go to. And they got an old Heidelberg press. I really like old school printing stuff. And so we got our first posters made in Seattle and we started shipping them out of our apartment all over the world. I remember wrapping one that was going to Dublin, Ireland, and I got cat hair in the packing tape. And I was like, oh, my cat hair's going to Dublin. So that's kind of how it started was like realizing that the thing that we were doing to market the thing we were trying to sell was the thing that people were willing to buy. And it was just a question of how do I package it in a sellable version? <laughs> like, oh, it's a poster now. It wasn't even a poster when it went viral, but Justin was like, okay, I'm going to make a PayPal link and people can pay us money. And I'm like, but we haven't even printed it yet. This is not fair. This is bad for the customers. He's like, shut your mouth. I'm doing it. And so we sold like 52 in like a couple of days. Back then it was like $28 a poster. It was like, we're a real business. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of how we realized that information was actually valuable depending on how you package it. And printed information. Yeah. So then you just started doing more of that. I think one of the interesting things about the movement towards infographics and just streamlined visuals is that it does help convey a picture. Picture's worth a thousand words, right? It helps convey complex topics in a way that people can help grok and process. I am curious though, in the world of wine, it's so complex and there's a lot of depth. Honestly, it's a barrier. How do you think about how deep to make your content? Because you could go down a rabbit hole and really go and explore everything. But like, how do you figure out what level to dive in for your content and your infographics? It's actually a really hard question to ask. You really have to understand who is asking the question and what question is it are they really asking? So it's the intent behind the question. And certain questions, like if I were to say, how is champagne made? 
it's a much different question than saying method champenoise, because this question of how is champagne made is a basic question. Maybe they're talking about sparkling wines. Do they want to know how all the sparkling wines are made? Because there's like at least five different methods that I can name off the top of my hand. But if they're asking about method champenoise, did they see that on a label? How did they get those words to ask the question? Why are they looking for method champenoise? So you really have to back out to the intent and then you have to look at what topics you're trying to discuss. So that is the biggest thing for me is intent and identifying the intent. And then because everything is complex and there's an endless amount of things we can go to, you want to leave it open. So I do what is called an inverted pyramid writing style, where essentially we'll give you the answer, but we'll try to lead into more. And at the bottom of the article, we'll have the deep divey, basically college level reading stuff. There's some articles that fail at this. (laughs) Don't quote me on this. The intent is the simple, easy answer. If you're going for a fast answer, it's there immediately. If you can see that there's more there, like with your subheadings and your bullet points and the skim level reader, and then your deep reader who's actually reading paragraphs, they're actually reading paragraphs, and they usually come in towards the bottom. They skim down and then they see something they're looking for and they're like that, and then they actually read that paragraph. So you actually have a visual hierarchical language in text communication too, which I think a lot of writers don't take advantage of because it's stream of consciousness flow. It's like a conversation and conversations work great on audio, (laughs) for example, but they don't necessarily work all the time for written word. And I legitimately can't, like if I see a brick of text, it scares me and I don't dive in. Like I am afraid to read long chunks of text. Like there's a resistance there and they've called it a learning disability. But what I've learned is that I'm not the only one who's like that. And so parsing information and allowing people to having diving in spots, a visual design to your communication is something that I care very much about. I don't know that I even answered your question. I went down another path. (laughs) I think the inverter pyramid is an answer to the question in terms of written content. I guess my question is trying to understand a little bit more about the audience of Wine Folly, because it could be anybody, because you guys do have great SEO and you do show up at the top in a lot of searches, especially if you're just starting, like, how is wine made? What's carbonic maceration? You guys pop up really high in those rankings. And I'm curious, who is the user for Wine Folly and how do you think about your content in terms of guiding them through if they want to learn more? And so I think the inverted pyramid answered part of it. I think maybe the follow-up question would be more of like, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about who's a typical purveyor or consumer of your content and maybe it varies by channel as well. Wine beginners, 100%, because there will always be more people getting into wine always and forever. And if there's any way I can help make that pie get bigger, because especially right now, wine and all alcoholic beverages are kind of under threat. And so can we make them more manageable and responsible and moderation and understand wine and not be so afraid of it? And so beginners always, I will always try to serve beginners first, because if I can serve them, I can serve everyone else at some level. You built for SEO and then one of your infographics, your first kind of went viral. That's how I guess the initial people came in. How else did people find out about Wine Folly or was it just that, that just the virality kept going? No, the viral things kind of like peak and they go down. They're little blips. The real work was in all the content. It's a long tail SEO work that we're doing. So search engine optimization is really just content marketing. It's the free, I say free in quotes because it's not exactly free. It takes a lot of time and energy, but it is the free organic marketing solution. So if you are communicating what people want to find out about and you're the landing spot for that, 
then you can get traffic that way. So it was a long tail. It was the area under the curve, really, that built Wine Folly. It was posting three articles a week consistently for many years. That is what built Wine Folly for free, making them available for free. Did you guys ever do any paid marketing outside of that? We started playing around with paid marketing for our products much later, starting in maybe 2019 or 18, somewhere around there. What was more successful for you, doing all the SEO content marketing, the social media, paid marketing? Social media is kind of like a billboard. It's really hard to measure because it's so much smaller than everything else. So you don't think it's valuable, but you keep doing it because it seems to be important, but you're not really sure why. Because the metrics, they're like less than 10% or even less than that of the traffic that we receive comes from social. But that billboard like awareness thing is very important. And it's because people are on those platforms and that's where they're spending time. So if you're visually on those platforms, they come to associate you with this topic of wine. So we keep doing it. We have a head of social marketing who was the first hire I ever hired actually was Phil. And he's a retired comedian from Georgia who's also a pretty avid video gamer and has some background in writing the three-act structure, so writing plays and that kind of a thing. So he's really freaking cool. And so he'd never really done social media before. So it took about a year to get him up to speed on the voice. And he didn't really know anything about wine either. So now he's at WSCT level two. He loves German Riesling and he's been to Germany to the Moselle and that kind of a thing. So he was our first big hire. And so when you talk about site traffic, is that how you measure success for engaging your audience? Or are there other things you look at? There are several metrics. Reach and revenue is what the business cares about. It cares about reach. It cares about revenue. We need to stay employed and we need to meet new people. So those would be our primary objective key results that we look at every year. And we do follow that model. And we just started about a year ago and we've been trying to adopt it across the team, which is difficult. So those are very important for the business, but defining specifically what is reach. If there's traffic on our site, that's great. How long are they spending on a page? Is it real traffic? Is it bounce traffic? So there's many things that we look at technically that could define reach. If you get a group of people to look at a second page, that could double your site traffic just in that action. You can make it as complex as you want it, but the simplest answer is usually the simplest result. The more reach we get, the more revenue we get, the more transactions that happen through the reach and revenue because they're directly related. And so we care about those things. And so many things have changed since 2011. It's a very trepidatious marketplace. I don't even know that that is a word, but it is definitely like, whoa, are we going to (laughs) die or are we going to be successful? I don't know. It's really hard to know right now. It feels pretty exciting, although we keep doing the thing. We're not publishing three articles a week anymore, but we're starting to do things in like chunks and we're about to do some dope stuff. Some really dope stuff is coming out. (laughs) I saw your classes are coming out. I saw the trailer for that. That was kind of cool. Yeah, we have a French wine course coming out this March, which I'm so excited about. It's a very different way to learn about French wine. It combos traditional learning with self-challenged based learning. One of the things that I had a problem with, with studying with Court of Masters was the learning model. What are we using all this information for? What do we do with it? And so I have created some challenges in this course so they allow you 
to actually force yourself to figure things out and challenge yourself. Because the only way you're going to get to great knowledge is if you're actually picking out wines and tasting them and failing. A little bit of failing goes a long way. We have this challenge-based education, which I'm very excited about. I think it's the next thing. It allows people to like maybe get a buddy involved too. Like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Let's try it together. And I'm going to teach you a little bit about what I know because I've been taking this course. And so when you're teaching someone else, it solidifies that knowledge more in your head too. So I think wine education has the opportunity to be so much more and allow people to become comfortable with wine. My goal is not to make everyone master sommeliers or masters of wine. Not that I am opposed to that because masters of wine and master sommeliers are really cool to hang out with and share drinks with. But I would like to raise the base. I would like people to be comfortable. Oh, you know, I'm going to get a cava. I'm really feeling like some sparkling wine right now. And that cava is made in the same method as champagne, but it's only $10 a bottle, guys. It's super affordable. That is what I'd like to do is to raise the base. And that base is a lot bigger set of people than the, what, 300-something MSs and 400-something MWs. How did you decide how you want to measure your reach? And can you tell us how big is the reach? We get approximately 20 million visitors to our site a year. That's to various pages. And we sort of track with the pages that are top hitters. And like the topic of wine has changed over time. It's actually gone down quite a bit over the last five years, interest in the topic of wine in general. So we've been observing that as well. But we sort of track all of this, our visitors that come through and not in the creepy kind of tracky way, but more like, what did they look at? What did they care about? Where did they go? Did they bounce? Were we successful? Because I really do believe what Rand Fishkin said was right. And he was like, what is 10x content? What is content that is 10x? It has to provide something unique. It has to be excellent and credit where due. And he kind of has this model where you do that. And I saw that and I was like, yes, exactly. I agree, finally. And so when we produce a piece, we do need to serve the 80%, if you will, who just want the answer and they're going to bounce. But it would be really nice to have 10x content that actually helps people learn about wine and can raise the base. So that's the thing that I'm always pushing for. This isn't good enough. We can do better. (laughs) We can do better. I am curious on the statement on the declining interest. Is that as a percentage of the whole or actually from the site traffic you're seeing? So like, I'm just wondering, is it going down as a per capita of things that people are searching for? Or is it going down in terms of sheer volume of numbers? Oh, just a per capita of what people are searching for on the net, not directly related to my website. Because my website could be failing and I could be like, oh, nobody cares about wine. <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's just more people searching for more stuff, but the actual just overall percentage of search related to wine is decreased as a percentage or is the aggregate number over time decreasing? It's a good question. That sounds like there's a many variables, but if you just look at the topic of wine, W-I-N-E, that topic itself has decreased in the last five years. So I'm speaking very basically. Like an SEO metric or the number of searches wine has? Number of searches, just the general number of searches. I don't know what that means, but I definitely keep an eye on it. How much do people care about wine? What about champagne right now? And champagne has this like crazy New Year's Eve, boom, champagne. Everybody cares and then nobody cares at all. Which is good for us, I guess. No, but it's it's, it's bad for everybody else not drinking champagne more often. (laughs) So outside of your portal, your website, you've also created a YouTube channel. And I'm curious on your thoughts. You've been doing YouTube for quite a while now. What was the reason why you launched a YouTube channel? And how do you think about, like, how's it going? Like, how do you think about the success of it or what the journey's been? Yeah, we launched that YouTube back when we started the entire site. 
However, it did get banned. One of our channels got banned once because of some issue. So we had to restart it, which was a bummer. Ah, that was so much work. Ah, they just took it away. But it's been growing rapidly more recently. Consistency, consistency, consistency is the key to growing a YouTube channel and having inconsistent content is something that I'm guilty of. With YouTube, I wish I had more time to dedicate to it, to be putting out one piece a week. One piece a week would be a really nice number to hit to get where I'd like to go with that account. I think that account could be about 300,000 by now. It's at around 60 if we're doing that kind of work. That being said, I'm excited to keep doing it. So I'm going to be building it more. And it's interesting. Wine is difficult on YouTube because we haven't discovered the format, like the digestible format of wine. Like it's easy to like a cook is like mushing things together or they're cutting things. There's a visual element involved. But with wine, it's extremely opaque. You just got wine in a glass. And like, what are you going to do with it? It's so in your head. That's the thing that wine is, is it's all in your head, actually. And so showing that is really the secret challenge to being successful on YouTube is maybe it's more about personality there and less about this other stuff. Although if I was really good at Adobe After Effects, I would put all of my infographics as animations in there and they'd probably do really well. But I suck at it. So you, in terms of distilling it down, it's just we haven't figured out the formula of what makes successful YouTube content. Obviously, there's people like Wine King and the Bon Appetit thing that are doing quite well. You're doing really good. I would say the production values, those two examples, Bon Appetit with Andrew Mack and Wine King, the production values are very, very different. One's kind of like vlog style with Wine King, but they've blown up. When you see other people kind of taking their different approaches, are there things that you're like, oh, I should incorporate some of these learnings from those two examples into how you make content for YouTube? Yeah, for sure. You want to see who's doing good stuff and what they're doing that's successful and repeatable. That's the thing is consistency is key. What can I do that I can do over and over again? Obviously, I'm going to do my version of it. Just seeing that Bon Appetit's wine section with Andre Mark is doing well is so awesome. Yeah, I'm green with envy that he got best cheapest wines. <laughs> but it means that there's interest there and that people are learning about wine on YouTube. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's so great. This is awesome. This is so fantastic. And I mean, I follow a bunch of people and there's a bunch of great content creators on YouTube. And this is going to be just awesome to see how it comes together and who does what. Because we learn from all different places, right? When I go on YouTube to learn about, I don't know, my video camera or how to edit something, and I'm following a bunch of different things. And so I expect the same is going to happen with people who are learning about wine. And so if there's options, that's great. I mean, YouTube is synonymous with a place to go to self-learn and develop a knowledge base where Instagram is more of a community, TikTok's a little bit more ephemeral. And I'm curious on how you see the difference between these platforms. And let's throw in LinkedIn for that matter too. I mean, there's a lot of professionals who drink wine and they want to learn about wine. So I'm curious on how you see the different social media platforms and what do they do for the Wine Folly brand or the Wine Folly audience? Yeah, I think you have to look at each channel. I kind of think of it as like, alleyways in the marketplace. Like if you're at a Roman market, <laughs> there's the spice area over here. You go there because you want to get spices and people are talking about spices there. And then there's the like area with the jugglers and the entertainment zone and they want entertainers. And if you're over there trying to sell spices, you're not going to do as well in that part of the Roman market. And so I look at these channels much more fluidly as like, why are people using this channel? What are they doing on here? YouTube is actually a bit of a Swiss army knife, but people are learning about things on YouTube. And so it's like, okay, we can do that. And our most successful content is our 
strictly educational stuff that we do pretty much. So I'm like, yeah, that's my angle, baby. That's where I'm going to go do that thing in that part of the marketplace. So everything has got a place. Whenever you try to change it, oh, I'm going to make this thing and it's going to be different and everybody's going to love it. No, it's not. They're going to the juggling section of the Roman market to go watch jugglers. And that's just what they're going to do. So if you got any jugglers on your team who want to go juggle, fucking put them out there. They're going to be really successful. So that's kind of how I look at it. Is the entertainment alley more of like what you would consider TikTok? We were all thinking that. (laughs) Yeah, because most of these social media platforms start with a very honed focus and then they kind of grow and evolve as they kind of catch fire in a good way, catch fire. Do you have a TikTok strategy? Do you have an Instagram strategy that's significantly different? Or how do you see those platforms? Yeah, we do. We test different things on the different platforms because it's so hard to be producing that much content. We do a lot of like, all right, it works like this over here. And then we just do these two things and then it'll work like this over here. So we do a little bit of the like munging of things, which is whenever you're munging stuff together, it's never going to be as successful. But, you know, we're like out in the pirate ship. Phil's making it work, man. He's throwing words at the wall like hot spaghetti. That's kind of his style. And he puts it out there. We get the metrics back and we go, huh, okay. You know, sometimes we're like, this is going to work so well. And then it bombs and we're like, okay, all right, what do we do wrong? And then sometimes we put something out like is like nothing. Like we didn't even think about it and it just blows up and we're like, what do we do differently? What is going on? So there's a lot of that kind of thing that happens in the social media meetings where we're just like either scratching our heads or like, yes, we planned that perfectly. So again, it's consistency. It's the water and it's the area under the curve. It's the consistent products that we release, the things that work consistently, not great, not awesome, not like epic, but those things are the things that build our channel the most versus shooting for that shooting star. Although I do know some people who run shooting star type social media accounts and they're incredible and I'm really impressed. They won't post anything for forever and then they'll do the one thing. It's like they lift their one hand or one time and it's just like epic. And they get like 30,000 new followers in like a couple of days and stuff like that. I'm very envious of their glass cannon mage like hits that they do on social media. It's kind of awesome. But I'm definitely like the hunter with a thousand arrows. Just like, let's get it out there. Let's be consistent. Let's build slowly but surely. That's the way that I play the game. But I bet that there are other strategies just having compared it to game strategy right now in front of you and us right now. (laughs) Master of RPGs and brand strategy. (laughs) So you built this big audience. You sold them some posters, 52, I guess, in the first couple of days. Did you ever start the wine club? How has the business of Wine Folly evolved and changed over time? Yes, the business has changed substantially. I mean, we were going to be the wine club and we finally launched a wine club this last year as a partnership with Wine Access and it's growing really well and it's doing really well and it's an awesome wine club. So there's that. Then we also sell a myriad of posters, maps, tools, kind of like if I could compare it to something like Food 52 of wine accoutrements without the wine, everything but the wine. So I found my favorite wine glass and we offer the wine glass. I found my favorite opener. We offer the opener. I found my favorite decanter. We do that. I made a series of wine flavor charts based on a dendogram infographic shape. And that is a great way to find flavors in wine. And then I geeked out a bit on wine aromas, the actual chemical compounds that are associated, sort of impact compounds associated in wine. So like if you smell Sauvignon Blanc and it smells like 
cat pee or whatever. It's probably a thiol. And what are thiols? And they're associated to this type of wine or these types of wines. And so I geeked out a little bit about that. And I try to make it easy to get into because talking about thiols is pretty nerdy. But it's cool. It's awesome. Woohoo. Thiols. Passion fruit flavors in New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And then people are like, oh, okay, that sounds great. That's really cool. I like that. I like passion fruit flavors. So that's how we try to get people into wine is to help them connect the dots and have a way to do that. And so I make all these things sort of helping people do that. But in the process of doing all these fun visual educational tools that we've created, I've learned there's really no one doing that kind of thing. And I'm inventing a lot of stuff along the way. So for example, I created the nine styles of wine. The what? There are nine styles of wine? There are probably thousands of styles of wine legitimately, but I just simmered it down to nine. I should have made it a smaller number, like seven, but I was like, no, dessert wine other. We have a dessert wine other category, which is like everything under the sun that doesn't fit the nine styles. And I'm sure people talk shit about it all the time. So some things I made up as a categorization model. So that was stressful because then you're like, I want to fit everything into this category structure and you realize you can't. It's impossible, but you got to do something to help people learn. A lot of content-driven media tries to make money with advertising. Did you ever do that for Wine Falling? Only sort of recently have we gone into the foray of investigating advertising. We certainly share, like, if you come in through search, you can see a Google ad before you get served our internal ads that goes to our store. So we do, like, basic stuff, but that doesn't pay the bills. But no, our primary customer is the wine consumer. So we're serving the wine consumer and we're trying to make money on them. Although we will be looking at more like partnership, sponsorship type things in the future, which is very cool. More money. I like it. The more I talk to you, the more I think you're kind of like Martha Stewart of wine. You should be your new title. I used to hate Martha Stewart. I love her now, especially since she's gone to prison. She's got way more street cred, although I'm not doing any insider trading people, just so you know. I don't want to get house arrest or whatever it was. Well, you wouldn't mind having your face on a bottle with some... Of 19 crimes. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. So adding to your accolades in 2015, you published your first book, which became a New York Times bestseller. Have books been a major source of revenue driver for Wine Folly, or is it more about opening up another audience? It was initially set when we got the book deal because the first book came out in 2015 and the second book was in 2018. So the first book was like, basically it was like, okay, Madeline, you want to make the wine portal educational portal online? Well, here's an opportunity to do it in a book form first, which might be easier as far as user experience is concerned because it's linear. And so it was a marketing opportunity essentially to get published that gives you credibility before you're just, oh, look at this crafty blogger. Oh, no, she's a published author now. That was a big deal. So getting on the New York Times list was also a big deal. And that was predominantly fueled by the people who are already following us on email. So we got the most sales from our own email list with no help from the publisher legitimately. And they were so impressed with how well the book did that they asked us starting maybe months after the first book, oh, you want to make a second book? And I did not. I did not like working with that relationship. It's a very bad financial relationship. Well, it just does not seem optimal. But I eventually gave in and wanted to do it because A, my husband left Wine Folly. And you know, working with your husband is very difficult. And secondly, I had a lot of issues with the first book. And there were a lot of critical feedback with the first book from wine experts 
that were giving me lost sleep at night <laughs> kind of situation. And so I really wanted a chance to have, hey, now I'm going to do it for real, y'all. I'm going to redo this thing and I'm going to do it right. I'm going to build the guide that I would use to pass certified. That was the goal. I'm going to make a book that if you had it, you could pass certified, essentially. It's got the rubrics. It's got all the pieces. Maybe it's missing a few things because I have a limited number of pages to do the whole thing in, but I will get you to certified. And so that was my goal with the second book. And I recrafted the whole thing from the start. Sorry, I'm off topic. But yes, we do get a lot of sales from the book sales on our website, especially since we package it with our Wine 101 course online, because otherwise we can't compete with Amazon because they have it for like $20 a book. So for $35, you can get the book and a Wine 101 course on our website. Creative strategies. You mentioned wine guides, apparel maps, the wine courses and books. Are there certain categories that are bigger than others for the Wine Follies shop? Yeah, our tools section and our books section are probably the most successful. And then the courses are coming up real fast. We only just launched courses in 2020 when the pandemic happened. And so it was more like, we were going to do this, but now we're definitely going to do this right now. And so I'm very keen on courses because, as you know, digital products have initial cost, but their lifetime cost is a lot lower than cost of goods on a printed item. Well, and everybody's now used to being at home on a camera, remoting into something like a Zoom window or a Google Classroom or something like that. That's pretty standard these days. I've been doing that since 2003. Like, what's up? We were on Ventrilo and... What were those early channels back in the day when we were all playing video games together and had the crappy webcam? I'm so glad that the rest of the world is caught up with this because it's so cool. So switching to another side of the business that maybe many of our listeners actually don't know that much about or relate Wine Folly with, in 2019, you merged with Global Wine Database and created Folly Enterprises. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because when we first met up in person, you were super excited about the opportunities that would be in front of you due to this merger. Global Wine Database is still the most important thing that we do right now. And it is difficult to communicate the value other than the fact that if you've ever tried to start something with wine, like a business, or purchase wine as a professional career, or do anything in the wine business, it is really good to have consistent information about wines and bottles and producers and that kind of thing. And people still fax text sheets in the wine industry. And so the quality of information that we have in the wine industry right now is extremely disparate and horrible. And for education, and it stops education because people keep saying the same stories over and over again, even though there's new information, because it's hard to find new information and accurate statistics about things. And so Global Wine Database is an initiative to get all the wines and wineries into essentially a information sharing about their product. It's a product information management system. And this is a great way to create a tech sheet or developing QR codes so you can have them on your label and then share tasting notes and that kind of a thing. And this is all with the pro subscription, but there's a free subscription. So you can just add your wines and they'll be in the database. And what we did with it was we created region guides. And I have a Bordeaux region guide, a Napa Valley region guide. Our first one was on Walla Walla Valley in Washington State. We have trade guides. We made one for Georgia, the country of Georgia. So you can actually go and sort and look at their wines by grape variety and see what's there and go and see all the producers in Georgia and maybe discover them as an importer and learn more about what's available in the Georgian marketplace. So if you are an importer or that kind of a thing and you want to, hey, what are all the wines? What are all the producers in Bordeaux? 
I want to go look at all the producers, especially the ones that aren't imported currently, too. There's no database for that. So people, when they make estimates on how much wine is produced every year or all this stuff, it's all not true. It's very inaccurate. It's brutally inaccurate. And if we can increase the accuracy in wine information, what's being made, I know that people are going to fudge numbers here and there because it's a legally designated product, right? Because it's alcohol. But we could at least get the basics like, hey, at least a bottle shot. If I'm lucky, the pH of that wine. Wow, that would be amazing. If I had all that information, I can put that in a database. Now I can start to do really cool things. We started thinking we could be an API, having retailers use this as an API and that kind of thing that's still on the table. But like I was thinking you could actually find wine through taste. Like if you actually had accurate information about wine, you could look at one wine and then be recommended something totally different just based on the technical information of that wine that normally you wouldn't think of. And so we're going in that direction where we have all this automated, like Spotify, it can recommend music you've never heard of and never even thought to listen to. And that idea of having a recommendation engine has to be powered by good data. And so we need to make that in order to do that for the future. So I really see that as the sort of like highway, building the highways, the infrastructure of the wine world in a digital realm so that we can do cool things on top of it, whoever it is that wants to do it. So that's essentially what Global Wine Database is. And I met the guy who started it. He's from Canada. His name's David Glusman. And he was talking about his project. He showed me it. I looked at the data model and I was like, of all the data models that I saw, because I was actually looking for this for many years, this one did not suck. It's built using the ontology of wine. So like the ways we get into wine, taste flavor, producer, winemaker, all the ways you get into wine can be associated to a bottle including the technical information. The database is structured, but it's loose so much that you can do different things with it instead of some of these old databases that have all like the wine tasting notes and things like that are just very, if you want to do creative things on top of them, they're a hot mess. But this one is very fluid and nice and fun to use. And so I was like, what can I do to help you? (laughs) And he's like, well, you have a really popular website. Maybe we should work together. And I was like, all right, let's work together. Let's do this. And he's really cool to work with. He's actually the CEO of our parent company, Folly, because I don't want that job. Good God, no. So he does all the executive function stuff and I get to do all the cool creative stuff. So that sounds like a really fundamental change or a different vector for Wine Folly to go in. And I'm curious, so obviously you want to help this person, you have a popular website, but how do you see that strategy of coming together being like one plus one equals three? Like what's the synergy there that you saw? Because you were actively seeking something like this out. I need better data in order to do the work that I do. So if I want to do better work, I need better data. And he is a database of much better data. That is how it is working. And so you can see that in, say, for example, the Napa Valley Wine Guide. We built the content structure, like Wine Folly style, on top of this database. But then you can go in and sort all the wines from Oakville. I can't do that on a blog, but I want that. I want to learn about champagne and then see some champagnes from Montaigne de Rim after I learned about Montaigne de Rim because it sounded really tasty and delicious. You know what I'm saying? So like, I never wanted to be like, here's the one wine you should try because there are thousands of producers in Champagne. I'm not an asshole. And then people are just coming to you trying to be that one wine. It's a bad scenario. I wanted to be more agnostic. And you can do that with data and allow people to create their own filters for themselves and discover. And they'll spend a lot of time filtering and figuring things out and trying to find their wine for themselves because everybody's different. So I wanted to create that 
immersive discovery experience from education to bottle. And I have to use data for it. So that's where we're going. Got it. Definitely does sound like this is the future of Wine Folly in terms of that database and being something not only that you use, but then has a subscription that you sell out. How big of a revenue do you foresee this investment in the database and the global wine database being for Wine Folly in the future? Because you're obviously making a big bet here, but I'm curious, you merged and gave away essentially half of the company, right, to make this happen. It's the big gamble. It's the 10x thing. It's the thing that's way bigger than what we are right now. It'll be the primary revenue source if we do it right. And we look at what's out there. It's difficult if you're a winery to be like, who do I go with? Because there's a lot of contenders right now. But I will say this is long-term, long-form option is to build this. It's the closest you can get to you directly talking to the producer because I'm going to try to remove me from it. I'm going to become more transparent. I'm the user experience designer. I'm not the answer. The answer is like an article that is built in a way that you can quickly read it or get what you want out of it. And then ultimately end on a maybe a producer you're interested in finding out about. And that's been the hardest thing with wine is wine discovery. I'm a digitally interested person interested in solving the wine discovery problem online. And I'm trying to do it with education. So yeah, it's my big bet. It's always been the big bet. The book was like a cup holder. It's like, here's a model of how we can build the website. <laughs> now that we've talked through it, it's making a lot more sense to me. I'm glad that you gave us this context. It's wonderful. As we wrap up this episode, I wanted to end on a personal, like we do with all of our guests. What has been the most memorable wine you've had in the last year? And who did you drink it with? Oh, wow. Actually, <laughs> it was recently. Well, it was two wines. Well, yum, yum. You can do two. They were both from, was it from France? Gosh, darn it. I'm such a typical, I'm not even a big Burgundy fan. I'm just going to put this out here. I'm like an anti-Burgundy because I'm a proletariat. I want all the people to enjoy all the wines and Burgundy is totally inaccessible. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> I was hanging out with Megan Zoback and this guy named Andy Wong, who's a collector here in San Francisco, who harassed me on Instagram. And that's how I ended up hanging out with him. And Megan knew him. And that was why. And I trust her. And we went to just a local kitchen down actually in your neighborhood in inner Richmond. And I drank a bottle of 2017 Domaine Duchac, some premier crew, which shall remain nameless. And it was really expensive. But for a restaurant, it was not very expensive. And we split it. So it wasn't that bad on the line item when it came down. But it was definitely a lot of money to spend on a bottle of wine. But I will say that was the burgundy that made me go, oh, okay, burgundy does not suck. I'm actually a little bit of a burgundy hater, to be honest with you. Like I get bored by burgundy. But this wine was, you know, when you get goo-goo eyed, when you taste burgundy, that's really good. This had all the goo-goo eye. Like there were so many flavors that I took down in notes. Actually, I might have the notes. It's peach, dried sweet cherry, white pepper, dried porcini, orange peel, smoke, spearmint, rose petal, verbena, lemon ball. All of these flavors come together and you're like, what is going on in this glass? It was really an impressive wine. At this point, I rarely get those experiences. You know, when you're a super geek and you've tasted thousands of wines, you don't get a very many aha moments very frequently. You just want to drink what you trust because you're like, well, I know what that's going to be. It's like, I know I'm going to get the Starbucks, whatever it is, Sancerre. Oh, I know what I'm going to get. You know. And so when you get an experience that's new and mind boggling, it's like, ah, it's magic. And that was a magical experience. I probably gave you a really too long answer to that, but that wine was really good. So yeah, awesome. that was what That's I great. drank recently. That was great. So I'm a fan of Burgundy. Wouldn't expect that. If a bottle changed your whole opinion on the entire region, go Jeremy <laughs> Sace and uh, Domaine Dujac. I know, pretty incredible. We want to thank you for joining this podcast and talk about what's happening in the new forms of media for wine. We really appreciate your insights and your candid conversation. Thank you. Thank you all.
And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.